Thanks for joining the podcast with Tamara Gondor. Conversations with everyday innovators that reject status quo, think differently, and make a positive difference in their world. Listen in so you can ignite innovation, influence others, and make an impact too. And now your host, CrossFit addict, knee-high sock lover, and according to her kids, average cook, Tamara Gondor. What's up, Launch Streeters? Tamara here, your host and innovation enabler. You know, learning from your failures suck. Actually, let me say that differently. That's not quite right. Failure hurts, but learning from it is integral to success and definitely integral to innovation. And what's great is if someone else fails and you get to learn from it. It's a free lesson. And I think in today's age, especially with just how much transparency and just, I don't know, conversation and social media that we have, we can see other people's failures and we can dissect them and learn from them. And that's exactly what Kyle Murray did with the epic failure back in the day of Crystal Pepsi. Now, some of you may not be old enough to know about it, so go look it up online. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes. Kyle wrote this whole article about it. This is why we actually reached out to him, because it was fascinating to see this big, amazing launch, and then the whole thing just fizzle out. And Kyle dug deep into understanding why it failed and how we can learn the most valuable lessons from their experience. And we talked about how you should never assume your customers understand the why behind your innovation. You got to let them know why what you did matters to them. We also talked about why out-innovating your customer is one of the biggest traps you can fall into. I think this part is particularly important because I think a lot of us, even in the innovation space, are constantly pushing for new innovation, new innovation, but we got to be mindful of what our customers want and are actually ready to adopt from us. How far forward can we push them or is it too far and they're going to back away from us? It's, it's a fine balance. So we talk a lot about this outpacing, out moving past your customer, and why behavioral economics has a lot to do with innovation. Now, Kyle Murray is the vice dean at the Alberta School of Business and a professor of marketing, and he's on Inside Laundry today to give us some incredible insights. Let's do this. Were there ones, something in specific that you thought, oh, this would be a great case study for a book or for something, whatever? You know, I think we've, we talked about a lot of them last time on the podcast. So, you know, from Crystal Pepsi to the Edsel um, with, a, you know, a few others in between. I think those are the kinds of things that, that I've looked at in some detail. So let's talk a little bit more about Edsel because we didn't talk as much about that on the podcast. We focused on Crystal Pepsi. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that's the one that I've spent the most time on. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, kind of as, uh, you know, a similar example um, I've, I've talked about the Edsel before as well. Um, it, it was a little different because it was more, in a lot of ways, just ahead of its time. Mm. Tell me more. What do you mean by that? Well, it had things like a push-button start that you know, really turned people off. Um, now it's kind of become commonplace. Um, it, it had an odd body styling that people really didn't, uh, didn't appeal to people. Um, but, you know, since then, we've seen a lot of odd body styles in cars that have become very successful. So I, I think some of what happened there was um, the kind of thing we saw with the Apple Newton as well. It just was 
something that happened that that came before um, people were ready for all the innovation they were introducing. Can I ask you a question on that? So, um, and you'll have to bear with me if some of my questions sound naive. I'm very intentionally trying not to assume anything when I do these sure, interviews. And, and again, I don't have the specifics that I do last time for a reason because I kind of want to see where things take me sure. in these talks. But when you say ahead of its time, and you know, we're talking about the push button and the kind of odd body styling, why does that happen? Like, how do you miss the mark between so far out and where we are today? Because that's a there's a big gap between. And I've you know we've seen it multiple times with products, really. And then you know five years later, the same thing comes out and people love it. So yeah, how does that how does that even happen? I mean, do you just well, have it, some people who are too far ahead? I mean, I think basically that's it. I, I think there's. Um, it, you know, th this is the art of innovation, especially when it comes to design-type features. Um, but really, it's it's about kind of understanding how far you can push the market to get people excited without pushing it so far that it starts to turn them off. And we really have a pretty good understanding now of how that curve works, in this, at least in the sense that when it gets too far away from what you expect in a category, we start to react very negatively. But being able to say in advance, in hindsight, that's easy to say, in advance, being able to say, oh, that design is too far down the curve. Um, there's no no good science I've seen that allows us to, to make that kind of estimate. So instead, we're left with um, the art of it. How, how well is the designer or the design team able to anticipate what people want and push them in that direction without pushing them too far? So, you know, the, people use the example of the um, IMAX coming out with colors instead of that kind of ugly beige we had for computers for a long time. Um, you know, that's one that in in retrospect seems like a no-brainer, but, you know, it could have gone the other way, right? It's just it, that's, that's uh, it, it's, it's, it's much easier to, to be a professor and look back uh, in hindsight at these things than it is to be on the design team and... Uh, know that you're pushing far enough, but not too far. Do you think that when that when you know it's pushed too far out, are, are they, or is the process not surrounded with enough feedback? Are people, or does just everybody they're too close to it and they buy in, and then you take it to the marketplace and they go, mm, we're not ready. Um, yeah, so there there's some of that. I think I think we get into within design teams. Um, we spend so much time thinking about the product and what we're doing. You know, it's our 40, 60 hour a week job. Yeah. Um, it's easy to, to get too deep and then you bring it out to the market. Consumers think about it for a few seconds and decide it's not appealing. Uh, but I, I also think some of these things are hard to um, really test with market research in advance. Uh, you know, it's, it's that, I think we talked about this last time, but that kind of, uh, was it a Henry Ford joke that, um, uh, you know, if I ask people what they want, they'd say they want a faster horse. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> Which is apparently he never actually said, but, but it's a good thing. But it sounds good. You know, it's a good line <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's really difficult to push, to really push forward and be, uh, you know, a radical innovation in a marketplace requires you to do something that people probably don't say they like. But then when it gets out in the market and people start to see it and others start to see it and you start to get this momentum, 
and it becomes, um, you know, kind of a runaway success. You know, I think it's interesting. I think, um, I think if you asked people, well, we know if you asked people if they wanted the iPad, they probably would have said no in a focus group. They have a computer and a phone, like they don't need it. Right. And I think just, this is just off the top of my head, but I think if Southwest had gone and asked people if they want to stand in line like cattle to get on their planes, I, I can't imagine people would have said, yeah, that sounds way better than assigned seating. Right. I think I would have panicked. If I were in the focus group, I would have been like, but what if I can't get an aisle seat, you know? So, yeah. um, but but I want, do you think that, like, just looking kind of broader scope for a second, do you think that having those failures um, are just simply part of the bigger process and then set set you up for success later? So the push button comes back, the odd body styles come back, but do they have to kind of go wrong first before? Mm. Yeah, I kind of thought you were going in a slightly different direction oh. with that. I, mean, I think, obviously, failure is very important. It's easy to say when you're outside, because when you're inside and you fail, there might be consequences for your career or your annual bonus, or you know, you're know, going to have some concrete consequences. Uh, but as, as companies that want to be innovative, uh, you have to create room for failure and not punish failure. Um, because I agree, to, to get to those great innovations, you're going to have failures. Um, now, do you need to have failures in the sense that like, that's kind of what gets you along the road to what really does work? So you introduced the Apple Newton. I think it was the Newton, the handheld device early mm -hmm. on. Yep. Um, and that fails, and you learn a lot about the market that allows you to introduce right. the iPhone. Right. Right. So, yeah. so I think it works both ways. I think there's definitely those times when, um, you know, we just have to fail because we're going to try things that are on the edge, and the real competition, the big breakthroughs happen on the edge of of failure. So I, we do have to do that. In addition, I I agree that at least sometimes we can learn from failure. Um, I think that's probably less true in a a crystal Pepsi case, where it's not you know entirely clear how much they learned from that. Um, but in something like the Apple Newton moving to the iPhone, I think the, the, they learned a great deal. And that became the future of the company and an enormous industry and, and so on. So I, I guess my answer to, to that question is yes, in slightly different ways. You have to fail. Um, and it's great if you can learn to fail. I would learn from failure. Yeah, I think that's one of those things that's easier said than done, too. Um you know, yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I just, I sound so kind of sad saying it, but it's just, we all want to say that we all want to believe that. But to your point earlier, there are consequences on the line really for our jobs or looking wrong or not getting a promotion or whatever. Um, have you seen in your research with Esalen, Crystal Pepsi, Newton, all of the above, do you, have you uncovered kind of what some of those specific blowbacks are from the failures did the crystal pepsi team lose their job what happened well that's a good question i, I actually haven't looked into that so i haven't looked into what happens so i'm more on the marketing side and, yeah. and development of the product i haven't really looked at and it would be a very interesting question what happens to those those teams um I, you know i've heard anecdotally that there are um times when people go on to uh you know success from failure that kind of high-profile failure is is not the end of the world. Yeah. But I, I think more commonly for the average kind of person working in a you know consumer products company or other company that's trying to create innovative products or services is major failures are um, have major consequences. So I'll yeah. just give you one example yeah. without 
without getting too much into the specifics, but I worked with banks on a few occasions and, you know, this, the very senior, not quite C-suite level, but the sort of senior executive vice presidents who are in charge of um, bringing out a new banking product and similar in telecommunications to bringing out a new mobile product. Um, they know and, and have said to me that, you know, essentially failure at this level is, is a firing offense. Like if this, if we roll this out and it, doesn't meet the our financial goals. It doesn't generate the profit it's supposed to generate. Um, then I'll probably not be in this job in a year. And and I've seen that happen. So I've seen examples where people are, uh, you know, take a big risk, fail, and uh, have to move on to something else. So. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. You know, what I find interesting about that story, and thank you for sharing that, because it's, it's such a great example of the kind of real world that we deal with. What I find interesting about it is, you know, they basically said, if we don't meet our goals, whatever our benchmarks are, right, it's a fireable offense, right. in rolling out something new. So I'm always intrigued by how people, companies, set benchmarks and goals for new products service, whatever it is, rollouts, because they're often unfortunately based on their already successful brands and businesses. And then they almost set themselves up to failure, even though had they thought differently about the, not the product, but the benchmarks and gave it more time, they actually would have seen the success over time they were looking for. I mean, Seinfeld was not a success overnight. We kind of forget things take time. Yeah. And and I don't think that's uh, unheard of either, where someone you know, moves on or shuffled somewhere else or switches companies because they didn't get the initial success they're looking for, um, but they stick with it. And over time, it becomes um, a, a very successful product. And I, I think, you know, if we, if we did go back in banking and telecommunications and some of these other, you know, old school industries that are trying very hard to innovate, we would find many examples of, of that um, sort of, we tried, it wasn't a home run, that person got moved on, we stuck with it, and now it's one of our important products. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to Edsel for a second. So what happened? Did they pull it? Did they adjust? What happens when you realize, oh, we're way too far ahead? Yeah, so um, I have to think back a little bit. Um, I, I think the idea, it was a little bit like the Crystal Pepsi idea where Ford wanted to um, grab market share when they were sort of the followers. So in Crystal Pepsi, you know, Coke's the leader. Yeah. We're going to introduce this new product. It's going to have market share. Ford wanted to do a similar thing. And so they put a lot of effort into kind of a, a future-looking uh, product that was going to be, they knew it was going to be very, um, uh, you know, cutting edge or, or really pushing the envelope. Um, and then they unveiled it. And a little bit like Crystal Pepsi, it just, you know, the, the response to it was, hmm, this isn't very attractive. I don't see why I would buy it. Mm. Um, and in the Edsel's case, I think because of the way they, they built a lot of technology and future technology into it, it was also too expensive. I remember way back in the day, I had a Ford Probe. The first year was like one of the first years that electronic cars started coming out, you know, where things were actually all digital in the car. And the right. thing, I, <laughs> that car just defined my high school years, which is not necessarily good. But... Um, I remember being so far out there compared to all the other cars out there in the market in terms of, you know, the way the panels worked and the buttons <laughs> and the, it's kind of yeah. funny looking back. Um, and interestingly, my dad was very future driven, so he loved it for that reason, but it didn't do that well, I don't think. I'm not sure I'll have to look back. Um, yeah. Hey, well, uh, that reminds me too, if you'd probably remember there was, this is like in the nineties, um, I think Chrysler, maybe a couple other companies 
started to introduce cars that would talk to you a little bit. Oh. So it would say the door is ajar. Yeah, or, I remember that. And it was terrible, right? Yeah. But, I mean, now we're at a point where our cars talk to us all the time, navigation and other yeah. things. Um, but, you know, that probably set having voice in cars back a decade because it was such a terrible attempt to um, probably build on that TV show Night Rider and, yes. and the talking car idea. I remember my friend's parents having them and laughing. Yeah. And you yeah. know, the other part about it, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've kind of forgotten about it. The other part that I think went wrong at that time was that, you know, the door is a jar is not language we would use. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, so none of the language, yeah. none of the way the car talked to you matched the way you talked. And so it, it was a, it was a very computery robotic voice. Yeah, it was very robotic weird. Voice in, a door is a jar was ridiculous. ridiculous. Right. And I remember being so, like, I don't understand what a jar means. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably where I learned that word too. <laughs> <laughs> so I think like, you know, it was a combination of we weren't ready for cars to talk to us and what they put out didn't match the human experience or communication. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Um, when you think about, I, I'm going to go a little bit high level for a second, but maybe we can bring it into a case study. When you think about, you know, these kind of, quote unquote, epic failures, and whether that's Crystal Pepsi, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that, because this is a different kind of reason for that conversation. Um, are there red flags along the way that nobody picks up on? Or is it just a matter of, you know what, it just didn't work. And I'm not trying to trying to in any way get to a place where, hey, we can always see our failures coming, because I don't think we can. I think sometimes it's, it's the luck of the draw. I really do. I just, there are so many things that can go right and wrong in innovation at any given time. But are there in, in that case, were there red flags or it was just a matter of, hey, we missed one critical element? I think you talked about it on the podcast about the why part of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from from what I've looked into with Crystal Pepsi, I, I don't think there was, um, you know, a clear red flag. I, I think they were very, very ambitious in what they thought the brand would be, that it would be a multi-billion dollar brand right away. Uh, I, just because they took the caramel dye out of it. Right. I mean, that, that if, if you put it in very kind of stark language, we made it clear instead of caramel colored, and that's going to be billions of dollars for the company. Mm. Sounds kind of silly. Right. right. So at that level. But, you know, I, I think what they were trying to do was meet a need they saw emerging, and they were long, well ahead of their time in kind of, you know, let's let's take out the stuff we don't need and make the product a little bit uh, healthy is not the right word, but a, a little less uh, chemical driven, right? So let's let's get closer to what customers want and make it look like what customers want, and then we're going to launch it with a lot of fanfare. And there's no nothing, no competitor in the market. This would be in you know uh, uh, what's become popular language now is this is a blue ocean. This yeah. is a sector that nobody else is in. So. You know, I, I don't think there were clear red flags in that case, other than maybe just the common sense of, really, is this going to be, uh, uh, you know, a billion-dollar brand? But, you know, that's that's a that's easy to say now, right? It's yeah. easy to say common sense. But common sense is very hard to have um, prospectively. It's much easier to have in hindsight. You're listening to Conversations with Everyday Innovators on With Tamara Gondor Podcast. Let's take a moment to thank our generous partners that make this possible. I want to take a moment to talk about my friends at Howdy Puppy. Dogs experience all the same problems as humans. 
when it comes to joint pain, anxiety, digestion, and arthritis. A great way to help our four-legged family members with these ailments is with CBD-infused pet treats. Who doesn't like treats? As you longtime listeners know, my Mastiff, Zoe, is part of my family, but is getting older and has some anxiety issues when strangers come around. Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats has totally changed her disposition, and I know she feels like her young, energetic, confident self when she gets Howdy Puppy CBD Dog Treats. There are many CBD-infused dog treats on the market, but the truth is that many of them are overpriced and ineffective. We've looked at dozens of CBD dog treats and found most of them disappointing. Howdy Puppy is among the best brands in the CBD pet business. They deliver consistent quality, and their treats look and taste amazing, according to our dogs, of course. The company makes CBD dog treats in three flavors steak, bacon, and cheese rolls. All of Howdy Puppy CBD treats contain natural ingredients, including high-quality full-spectrum hemp oil, all sourced and made in the USA. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in Howdy Puppy, but before I put my name on the company, I had an independent lab in Denver, Colorado, verify the quality and consistency of their treats. They are truly as advertised. Go online today at howdypuppy.com, link will also be in the show notes, and use promo code TAMARA, T-A-M-A-R-A, that's me, to get 20% off the absolute best CBD dog treats on the market. You will not be disappointed. Howdypuppy.com, promo code TAMARA. Don't let them suffer needlessly. Let them enjoy life too. Do you think it's harder when you have a bunch of birds of a feather working on an idea because you know what I do see happen is you get a lot of similar type people working together I mean you know we all gravitate towards different industries different companies then we spend two years working on a project together Um, and you know I think in in that birds of a feather we tend to then get bought into our own little group think without even realizing it yeah and and I think that's very general and um, I I used to teach um, an executive education class for government where we talked about market research and, and, and why it's important. And one of the reasons is, and government departments run across this issue all the time, is you know, they're thinking about doing something new. It's something that they've been interested in probably for a decade. You know, it's a kind of what they did in university. It's what they've been working on for years. But it's, it's not something that the average person thinks about very much at all. They've thought about it so much. They're way ahead of their consumer, if to use that language. And when they introduce it, um, it, it's something that makes no sense to the people that are receiving it. Not not because it doesn't make sense, but just because there's such a disconnect in what we think about every day and what they're thinking about um, in in that design group or in that policy department. And so, I definitely think that 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 is a concern. And I I think the way to get around that is to spend a lot of time with your customers. And so one of one of the red flags that I would look for, you know, in almost any business, but in a retail business or a consumer-driven business, is when senior executives um, don't spend time on the shop floor, in the retail stores, when they spend all their time in the boardroom um, and working on maybe the financial aspects of, of the company. 
uh, that that would be a red flag. You know, I've often joked if there's a retail CEO who doesn't go to his stores, that's a that's a stock that we should short. Right. That's, <laughs> that's a company that's going to struggle to compete um, because there, there's a disconnect at, at the senior level. So hey, that's probably one of the red flags. You know, it's interesting. I, I shop at Walmart and Target. I'll just own it. I do. And um, and on both of those floors, I constantly see people who are corporate who are clearly working there for a day a week. And I've asked, like, I'll ask where something is. And they're like, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm coming here from corporate. I don't, let me help you find that. Right. Um, and I love that because I think that really shows that they're going to, are in touch with who their customers are. So many times, you know, you're four, you're four parts removed down the chain from the actual end user in your products yeah. and services. Um, so I think you're 100% right about that. I think if, if they're not out there and eating it and using it and, you know, driving it and whatever. Um, not to say that they can't like competitors too. I think, I think actually that's pretty healthy as well. I'll never forget. I, sure. we did work for actually for Pepsi, funny enough, and we did focus groups and we had to take out all the Coke products in the facility <laughs> before they got there. That was my job. I was low on the totem pole at the time. And uh, I remember being told a story about the VP firing someone who ordered a Jack and Coke. And I thought <laughs> that's a disappointing because, right. Um, I think you should, you should always know what's happening and why people ask for other things. And the poor guy, the poor kiddo that, you know, got fired, I'm sure just, it's, it's just part of Jack and Coke is just, I don't know. It's just what you say. Like, it's not, he probably didn't even think about it. It probably didn't occur to him, but I I think it's interesting when, when companies either get too insular and drink their own Kool-Aid too much or don't do enough of it. Yeah. So I've had the same Exact same experience with Pepsi. Oh. Um, we, ah, Pepsi. We had some some uh, Pepsi execs come and speak in one of our classes, and so in between the classes, I uh, took them out for lunch. Um, but at the University of Alberta, we're a Coke campus, mm. so Coke has paid whatever millions of dollars, yeah. so that all the products here are Coke products. So they could eat lunch, but they couldn't drink anything. God. <laughs> and when they went back to talk in the second class, you know, they were clearly dying of thirst and, you know, trying to drink from a water fountain, um, it, you know, overly extreme. Yeah, yeah. Now, what's what's even funnier about that is I, Pepsi, at least in Canada, is split into the food side and the beverage side. Mm. So those are the beverage guys. When I have the food guys, so they are the potato chips and other things. Um, yeah, Lay's and all that. They're okay drinking. <laughs> some some uh, some Coke products occasionally. That's really funny. So, I yeah, mean, I mean, they would they would choose Pepsi if they could, but if it's a Coke campus, they'll drink some Coke. So, yeah, I mean, uh, poor, so I, I completely agree. poor Pepsi. I mean, I I'm all I I'm a big believer that like I, I want the people who work for me to love what we do and and the products and services that we provide. And um, if there's a reason why they are inclined to go elsewhere, I want to know. Like, I think that's really valuable, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I also think that um, I'm all about fail forward and all that, except I think um, what we fail to do in buying into that is create a process that allows us to fail in increments and learn and adjust. I think we still go from kind of conference room to focus group to market. Right. And miss miss the all this in between that could have allowed us to optimize and not settle for good enough when we got yeah. there um, and do it in ways that they interacted with the consumer, or the customer. I'm not saying to leave them out. I just, th- I just think we launch and then we fail because right. we, we didn't experiment along the way. Yeah. And, and I, I think one of the, one of the ways to get around that is a lot of companies now um, have beta testers 
who will try things out. Yeah. And it's a small group to fail with as opposed to failing at the market level. So, you know, what if Crystal Pepsi had only been launched in Pasadena, right? And seen what the response was like as kind of a test and then pulled back and, you know, either decided to go national or decided to, to just hold back on that product. Um, we do see that now. Uh, we're talking a lot about Pepsi. It's yeah. just top of mind. But uh, we talked about on the food side, like potato chip companies and other companies will do limited launches in particular areas to try and um, test how successful a product will be, give it a short run, um, and then replace it with something else. So you know, that that's a kind of, um, I guess, sort of insurance on failure as opposed to bringing it out to the broad market right away. You know, it's funny. I, so I lived in New York City for many years, and um, we did a lot of new product development, and we always came to Denver. This is always where we tested stuff, which is now where okay. I live, which I just thought was so funny. I was like, huh. Look at that. I'm in my test market because apparently Denver is <laughs> progressive, but set in his right. ways at the same time. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, well, yeah, so if you yeah. fail fast in Denver, that's not the end of the world. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. So I love that model when people do it, but I think we, I think we tend to kind of what we were saying earlier. We get overly excited about it. We think, yep, this is it, and then we launch, with, and we miss all of that in between that could have helped us get to a better product. And, and I mean, again – it's easy to talk about this in theory, but in, in practice, um, there's a lot of other pressures. You want to get to the market as fast as you can. You want to get there before your competitors do. Uh, I, I mean, if we look at the mobile phone market, uh, Samsung and um, some of the Chinese manufacturers and Apple, and, uh, you know, it's just uh, constant high-pressure innovation. If you bring a product to market that, um, you know, like I guess in the extreme, it kind of semi-explodes and catches on fire, that sends, sets you back a ways, right? So it, it sets Samsung lost uh, a lot of market share globally um, as a result of the, the 7 that was exploding. And, and that was really them trying to push as fast as they can into more battery um, storage and, and power. So, yeah, it's that fine line, right? I mean, you want to get there before your competitors do, but you don't want to get there so fast that the product fails um, on a large scale. Yeah, that's very true. And and I think some part of that is also how you position it to your customers. So I'm just going to use Apple's and nothing blew up, but they have glitches every time they put out a new phone. That's true. But yeah. we still, do, we're like, that's okay. <laughs> like we get right. annoyed, but we're like, that's okay. I'm still waiting in line for the next phone. You know, it's, it's this funny thing about what your relationship is with your customer too, that I think allows you to have mistakes or not. Now, blowing up is a little different. Right. right. You know, that's kind of bigger, but, yeah. but just... But in that kind of area of like, hey, we make mistakes because we're pushing too fast. Apple does it every single time. We expect it. That's right, right at the edge. Yeah, and I, I, so, you know, again, that comes back to the brand power. I think you have a lot more mm, yeah. opportunity with a very strong brand or if you prefer kind of customer relationship, the relationship between the brand and the customer is very strong. I mean, it, it, kind of from a technical perspective, one of the reasons you want a strong brand and a strong relationship with your customers is when you have that strong brand relationship, they tend to tolerate failure and accommodate you a little bit more. When the relationship is weak, um, you're much more likely to just uh, jump ship. And I mean, that's drawn that, that kind of the background for that idea is drawn right from interpersonal relationship kind of uh, a theory, which is, you know, if you're in a, I, I use the example of the first date, right? If you're on a first date, 
the bar is much higher than when you've been married for 30 years in terms of what you can say and not say and, you know, how well groomed you are and all the other things. So, yeah, if you can get to that place as a brand where you're in that 30-year relationship, you're going to get a lot of tolerance, um, a lot of opportunity to make mistakes. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, if you're just dating, you can't get away with that. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I understand that conceptually, but I hadn't really thought about it in the terms of, it's like a relationship, right? Your friends who you've known forever screw up and you let it go. Someone who you barely know does the same thing and you're like, they're out of my life. That's right. That's right. Or, you know, you, you give them a strange look and kind of back away. Right? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, oh exactly, that's exactly it. I and mean, we talked about some of those things um, last time. Like, I think I had the example then of the chickpea cookie dough uh, and you had the great example of, um, I think it was vinegar in uh, uh, a sports drink. Or oh, yeah, uh-huh. the vinegar something drinks. Similar, right? Yeah. And, and if, if you have a relationship, I mean, sometimes it could be a relationship with the, the product itself. So you like vinegar and you understand the health benefits and why it works in the drink. Or you, um, you, know, you like chickpeas and you know what chickpeas are going to taste like, even if we're saying it's cookie dough. Then you're going to be okay. Where you're going to run into trouble is um, for that person who has no idea. They're just sort of at the shelf and they see vinegar, um, and that just you know breaks the really. They, again, they just kind of make that face and back away, right. and you never have a chance to um, introduce them to the product. Right. Right. Good point. Hold. On, let me take a note real quick. Let me say that. Um, well, Kyle, this has been awesome. I know we're almost out of time, so that was perfect. Thank you. Oh, I yeah. the little section when in the beginning, especially when we were talking about. Um, being too ahead of the game, I think is really interesting from an innovation perspective because we're always pushing. We're always pushing. And, you know, sometimes we forget that you can push too far. Related to one of the things we talked about last time, which is, um, you know, we, we're always thinking about innovating as quickly as we can to satisfy consumer needs. Uh, but consumers today are really overwhelmed with innovation. There's so much of it. And, and sometimes, you know, spending time building that relationship and going a little slower, you know, like if you want to use that analogy in the first few dates, uh, <laughs> is, is the right way to, to get to the longer term relationship, as opposed to just kind of overwhelming people with a full on um, extroverted personality <laughs> right from the uh, hello. <laughs> I'll remember that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Kyle, this was great. Thank you. Congratulations. By listening to this podcast, you took another step towards becoming an everyday innovator. To leap forward, visit www.gotolaunchstreet.com and take the Innovation Quotient Edge Assessment to discover your unique everyday innovator style and access the Everyday Innovator Digital Magazine for the top tools, insights, and inspiration at your fingertips 24-7. Tomorrow, we'll be back with another Everyday Innovator conversation soon. In the meantime, if you got a nugget of value out of this podcast, let Tamara know by leaving a five-star review and comment. Your review equals more guests, more listens, bigger impact. Until next time.